Can state politicians be held accountable to the public? This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Despite nationalized politics and media, a lot of policy is still made in state legislatures, and elections may not provide much of a mechanism for keeping state politicians in line with voters' views. After all, most people don't know what their state leaders are up to, and most of their elections are not competitive. Does that leave them free to pursue extreme and unrepresentative goals? And if not, what else keeps them accountable? This week, I talked to Stephen Rogers of St. Louis University about his new Chicago book, Accountability in State Legislatures. He finds that voters don't know enough about state politicians to hold them accountable, in part due to the decline of state media. And electoral mechanisms are not enough to keep them from diverging from the people they represent. But I also talked to Chris Warshaw of George Washington University about his Chicago book with Devin Coey, Dynamic Democracy. He finds that state policy has grown more representative of state publics and more responsive to changes in opinion, only partly because elections change who's in power. State officials also follow public opinion in between elections and out of fear of electoral threat. This episode will let you experience the real renaissance of state politics research, where we talk comprehensively about the state of American democracy with new data and perspective. First, the bad news from Rogers. So what were the main findings and takeaways from accountability in state legislatures? So the main findings and takeaways from accountability in state legislatures is that legislators probably do not have much electoral incentive to act in their constituents' interest. And so here, accountability in state legislatures doesn't find that there's no accountability, but it finds that there's just not very much of it. And then here, the story behind this is like, we can probably easily think, well, maybe voters don't know all that much about the state legislature. But here, a story of it is that is both elites and voters kind of responsible for this lack of accountability. So some kind of key findings within it are like in state legislative elections, kind of in the general elections, when you look at single member districts over the last 20 years, over a third of state legislators win re-election without either a primary or general election challenger. And so otherwise stated, what this is saying is that one third of state legislators just win re-election just by signing up. And so here, it's kind of hard to have accountability or a voter to hold a state legislator accountable if they have no one else to vote for. And so here, kind of in the book, I try to illustrate not only with challengers, but also kind of with the media and then how districts are kind of drawn. There's a lot of things in the system that are kind of stacking the deck against accountability. And then additionally, like there is some responsibility kind of on the voter side in which voters, most voters don't know who their state legislator is, yet on what they're doing from day to day. And so then here to hold a state legislator accountable, you may think that a voter is going to probably need to know, did my legislator act in my interest? Did they do a good job? Did they even do constituency service for me? But I generally find that they don't really know that much about what their state legislators have done. And so here, for example, fundamentally, only about 11% of voters can recall the name of their state representative. And then additionally, when I ask in an open-ended question on a survey, can you tell me anything that your state legislator has done? 75% responded no or don't know. And so that leaves 25%, but then actually like in my own concession, I don't know if even what they told me was true. And so then in this, they may be often confusing who their federal legislators are, who their state legislators. So overall, kind of the punchline of the book is that we think that these elections are supposed to be incentivizing, say, these state legislators to act in our interest. 
But in terms of how much they're held accountable or how much electoral incentive legislators have, it ain't all that much. So one, that is one of the striking uh, fee findings is uh, how little voters know about uh, state legislators uh, and state legislatures. So what, what do they know um, and why uh, don't they know more? Uh, is it a consequence of declining media coverage uh, or uh, is there some other source? Yeah, so here I do think you're right on track, uh, Matt, in terms of state le voters don't know all that much about their state legislature or their state government in general. And I would attribute a lot of this to the media, but it's also going to be just general lack of interest. And so here, just kind of go through the first part in terms of like kind of what voters know about their state legislator. So some statistics I just like said, in which only 11% of voters can recall their state legislator's name. Oftentimes when they were asked to recall their state legislator's name, I found they confused it for say a U.S. House rep. So this happened about 13% of the time. Um, and a different survey where I only look at Tennessee voters, so the Vanderbilt University and the Center for Democratic uh, Institutions um, very generously let me put some questions on their poll. Um, only 22% of Tennessee voters could identify their state legislator's name from a list. And so then here in this list, what I did is I put the names of four different state legislators. One of them was their own state legislator. And then um, in it, then another was just like kind of a name of a political scientist like Donald Stokes. Um, and then here in terms of guy choosing this, only 22% could kind of identify their state legislator's name. And this was 16% fewer than could identify their U.S. House member's name. So there is this difference between, say, federal and state level knowledge. Um, and it kind of expanding on this difference. So this is a lesson in the book, but in a piece that's uh, coming out in State Politics and Policy Quarterly. I also asked kind of like, okay, what do you know about, say, the differences between federal and state government? And then here, for example, fewer than 60% of Americans knew if their state had background checks for guns. Legal, so this survey was in 2018, uh, whether they had legalized abortion or higher tax rates, you know, sort of thing than they did previously. Um, additionally, they don't really know all that much about their governor's powers. So in this, people didn't know their governor could issue an executive order or pardons. Meanwhile, they knew that the president could do this. And so there is a lack of knowledge kind of within uh, state politics or people's awareness. And what's something that's kind of troublesome is that state legislators themselves seem to know this. So here in a night, very nice studies that have been done by um, Nick Carnes, David Brockman, Chris Cabron, and Melody Crowder-Meyer, they have the National Candidate Study. And then in here, what they did is they asked state legislative candidates and state legislators different questions. And when asking this, only 49% of state legislators thought voters knew which party controlled their state Senate. And so here, I find that generally about 60% of voters know which party controls their state Senate or state house. But here, about half of state legislators seem to be cognizant that voters don't know all that much about even who controls the legislature. And maybe even more troublesome, in the same survey, Carnes uh, and others found only 15% of state legislators thought voters knew who to blame for policies they did not like. So here, 85%, the state legislators think 85% of voters just don't know who to blame. And so this is kind of troubling because we want legislators to maybe be scared, but a legislator is not going to be scared if voters don't know all that much or when they realize they don't know all that much. And then additionally, like, so the second part in which it's like, so why are we here? And then here I would just kind of say, first, there's there is a problem kind of in terms of media coverage. 
And so since the turn of the century, so going back to 2000, um, there's been a decline of over a third fewer state house reporters covering state government. And so right now, for example, there's more reporters that are credentialed to like cover a single, single Super Bowl than necessarily all state governments combined. And so here I love football. I have four fantasy football teams. I am into it, like sort of thing. I'm very sad that Nick Chubb got hurt this week. Um, but in this, so I'm really into football, but here voters themselves aren't as into say state legislatures as well. And so when I kind of even look at what, so in the book, I conduct this analysis where I just look at Google trends in which Google very nicely kind of lets you search for, or kind of identify how much are people searching for different things. And then here I find that voters overwhelmingly search for things about federal politics. They at times search a little bit more for uh, gubernatorial politics. So particularly we saw this around the pandemic, there was a giant spot, not a giant, but a, a healthy spike in the amount of people kind of got Googling that they're governor, but they're not Googling about their state legislator. And so this is kind of a combined aspect in which there's less media coverage of state legislatures and in general voters just aren't all that interested. So the main mechanism for accountability is supposed to be elections. Um, give us kind of the lay of the land uh, for how many uh, state legislators get competition at all in their primary and general election, and then how many are, are actually uh, threatened or lose those elections. Yeah. And so then here, this is a really important part of the story, um, because, again, voters cannot necessarily vote a state legislator out of office if they have no one else to vote for. Even if the state legislator did like a horrible job, they can win re-election if no one else is running against them. And so here, what I'm going to be looking at is um, single member districts from 2001 and 2020. That's where these statistics are going to be coming from. And then here, about 83% of state legislators did not face a primary challenger. And then 45% did not face a general election challenger. And then if I take these two statistics and kind of combine them a little bit, Together, about 35% of state legislators did not face a challenger in either the primary or general election. And so when we're thinking about accountability, pretty much we're only thinking about two-thirds of races to start. And so we have a third of the races off the table. By comparison, about 90% of U.S. House incumbents face at least a major party challenger. So there's a pretty healthy gap between the state of federal and state levels. And in this, in terms of how much these legislators actually lose, typically, so over this 20-year period, only about 2% of state legislators lose their primary election. And then here, it's going to kind of range between, say, 6 to 10% of state legislative incumbents will lose their general election. And so overall, there is probably a little bit less turnover, like kind of in these state legislators. But I think the real punchline is that there's this lack of competition in which state legislators can just win re-election without, like, without much effort or any competition. So in the book, for example, I have an, an example of a state legislator from Louisiana who went pretty much about, say, 15 to 16 years without facing either a primary to general election challenger. He then decided to resign early so his son could run for the seat. His son then lost the special election. And then in the general election, his other son lost the general election. And so this one legislator's family, like sort of thing, had the seat forever just because they, well, not just because I can say, but largely because they didn't have any challengers. But then once there was a little competition, they threw the family out. 
You also look at ideology and you find uh, that uh, voters in general elections uh, do have a, a slight punishment for ideological extremists, um, but that doesn't really add up to uh, actually threatening those extremists um, because uh, they, of course, have to compete in primary elections as well as general. Mm -hmm. uh, so is it is it just that there is it that primary voters uh, favor extremists or just uh, that that they uh, that they that they make their way through the, the primary and then aren't threatened in the general? Uh, so here I think it is both in which so primary voters. So I, in my analysis, I find that when a legislator has more extreme ideology, and in this I'm measuring this by their, say, roll call ideal point. So they have a higher ideal point if they're a Republican, a lower ideal point if they're a Democrat. If they have a hot, like more extreme ideology or if they're more loyal to their party, so they vote more often with their party, then both Democrats and Republicans in their primary election are expected to do better. And so here there is an electoral incentive, at least from the data that I have, for legislators to provide this extreme representation. However, I do find also, like optimistically, that legislators who do provide, say, worse representation or this more extreme representation do worse in the general election. And so there is, like, like as we can think theoretically, oh, I want to cater to the extreme voters in the primary and the more moderate voters in the general. That seems to be occurring. But in this, like, one of the things that is a problem in state legislatures that we haven't talked about yet is that districts are becoming more and more extreme. And so here, just for example, if we just do like a little bit going back in the last 20 years, if I were to define, say, a close district as a district where the incumbent party's presidential vote was between 45 and 55 percent, so I'm going to say that's a kind of more competitive district. Back in 2000, there were about 25% of state legislative districts met this criteria. Now, in 2022, 2023, only about 15% do. And so then here, there's been a growth in these more partisan districts on both sides of the aisle. Um, and so then here, with these more partisan districts, that can make the primary a little bit more important for some of these legislators. And so then legislators in these more partisan districts, particularly districts, the analysis that I conduct is I define a partisan district as one where it's like 60% of the partisan vote or more. Then I find that legislators are going to get this reward even more for being extreme than necessarily being punished in the general election. So what I do is I trace a legislator from when they run for re-election, and my, deep, my final outcome variable is going to be, do they return to office? And so in that pathway, what it's doing is it's kind of encompassing both the outcome of the primary election and the outcome of the general election. And then what I find is that in these districts that are more partisan, legislators do have a little bit more incentive to be extreme. Meanwhile, in the more moderate districts, 60% or less, they do have a little bit more incentive to be moderate, which theoretically matches up with what we'd probably think. Because if I'm in a partisan district, I'm probably be guaranteed my general election outcome and so let's cater to the more extreme but this is troublesome because we have increasing polarization within state legislatures and then in this i can't necessarily go from a to b to c to link all this but what i do find is that they do have this in some of these districts which is a lot of the districts now it's about like 67 percent of the districts um these more extreme districts they have an incentive to be extreme
So you have some evidence uh, that uh, these state legislative elections are becoming uh, more uh, nationalized and that there's uh, less of a, a local incumbency effect compared to a national partisan uh, effect. But you also have this um, graph that is actually the first graph I show to our uh, people in our uh candidate training program, uh, which who might want to run for state legislature, which shows the very long history of the uh, similarity in the national congressional vote and the national state legislative votes, which suggests that maybe this is actually a pretty long-term pattern um, that uh, state legislative uh, elections are partisan elections that people are voting kind of on a national partisan basis. So how much of it is kind of how it's always been and, and how much of it has changed? Um, uh, yeah, so I love that graph as well. And so to kind of describe the graph, I'm kind of looking at the change in seats for the Democratic Party in U.S. House and State House elections over time. And then the correlation, at least to me, is very striking. It's 0.96. And so here, what we're basically having is that we see the same things at the national level as we do the state level. And then here, I would say, and my data, admittedly, so I can took at seat change over time, in terms of accountability and presidential approval and different national measures, I can only really go back to the 1940s, like sort of thing. So I can't say back in the times of like the 1800s, is this also happening? I we don't have survey data from there, but if someone knows about it on your on this podcast at listener, send it my way. I'd love it. Um, but here, I do think there's kind of an aspect to it. That this is the way it's always kind of been. So for example, this isn't in the book, but um, in other work that I have, I actually look at like New Jersey elections over time. And then in this analysis, I'm kind of reading about the history. So it was in the 1940s that New Jersey kind of switched their state elections to be in the off year. So for less familiar readers, or not readers, uh, listeners, uh, there may, most state legislative elections occur at the same time as US House elections in even numbered years. But in states like New Jersey and Virginia, they're in off election years. And in here at the time when he was advocating for off election years in New Jersey, the governor, Alfred Driscoll, said the election for governor and assemblymen should not coincide with a presidential election. The importance of a gubernatorial election merits an election that will not be overshadowed by a national contest for the presidency. And so here, this is coming from the Constitutional Convention of 1947 in New Jersey. But in this, I'm going back now like almost 70 years or like more than 70 years where this is, they were rec they're recognizing this. We have these states elections that are kind of just being overshadowed by the national context. And so I find this largely to be the case when I look at say changes in the economy and then seat changes over time. And so this is kind of a, seems to be the norm, but there has been a little bit of variation over time, at least in terms of nationalization. And then here I do recommend um, reading Dan Hopkins, very appropriately titled book, the increasingly United States, because this book kind of goes a little lot more into maybe different reasons for why we have this nationalization. But one reason I do think is that we do have a changing media environment. And so, for example, when Madison and Hamilton were creating a lot of these, like the system of federalism, they were not expecting that, like, oh, a little piece of news or a tweet can go all across the world almost instantaneously. Instead, it was kind of be filtered through newspapers very slowly. And they thought, oh, these local newspapers will have more attachment to our local politics a little bit more. But as media and just technology has evolved, the nation itself has become more nationalized. And so I've already kind of mentioned how there's been fewer statehouse reporters. But we also can kind of think about work like in terms of like there's media companies that are consolidating. 
you know, sort of thing. And so if we think about like, say, Gannett News and stuff like that, in which it's like, well, they're going to need news stories that can cover multiple markets. And then here it's like, well, it's cheaper to just do one story on more national politics than necessarily do a story about every local issue. And so this is something I do think is concerning, like the decline of state house reporters, fewer newspapers. And so I think at least that's one reason why it may be a little bit more intense and intensely nationalized now than it's been in the past. Since we are coming up on uh, a few elections in uh, Virginia, New Jersey, and uh, Louisiana, and Mississippi, what what is the evidence on differences uh, in the off year? I know they're often looked at as predictive of, of the next election. Are they are they more separated from national partisan uh, factors? Uh, so here, like kind of this is again this part's not in the book, but um, it's in another paper that I have. Um, and then here, one thing that I did do. So in terms of the answer. I think they may be slightly more separated, but not extremely so. And so here, if I conduct many of the analysis that I look at, like say with on-year states, the patterns are very similar. And then referencing, for example, that New Jersey example. And so here, I really wanna thank the people at the Eagleton poll at Rutgers University, because they tremendously have been polling on state politics going back to the 1970s. And so here, one thing that they've done, it's not in every survey in every election year, but what they did is they did poll about, say, presidential approval, gubernatorial approval, and state legislative approval. And then they also asked voters their vote choice in these elections. And so then here, what I'm able to do is I'm able to look at survey data going back over time, where our expectation is going to be that if a voter becomes more approving of their legislature, they would then vote for the party that's kind of in control of that legislature. And occasionally I do find that, but then what I consistently find returning to this topic of nationalization is that the best predictor after someone's party ID is going to be their approval of the president. And so then presidential approval, at least in these surveys, going back to the 1970s, which is like the oldest survey data I can find that has like state house vote choice along with different approval measures. I do find that no national politics is largely dominating state legislative elections. Um, here and more recently, we kind of see that there's like there's a decent amount of competition in Virginia and New Jersey, and there's a lot of it, like attention there. But overall, the pattern is relatively the same. So as you know, uh, I'm also interviewing uh, Chris Warshaw, and they have a different uh, set of findings and a different uh, research uh, method uh, than than you do. Um, but in some ways, it's it's more optimistic. Uh, they say that. Uh, state legislator legislatures are able to to follow uh, public opinion um, in part uh, due to uh, elections and in part uh, due uh, to uh, just directly uh, taking on public opinion. And I guess one way of putting it is that you know we used to have more states that were kind of out of step with their publics, and um, now most conservative publics are governed by conservative legislatures and uh, vice versa. And when there have been real moves, they've eventually, in public opinion, they've eventually been uh, recognized or represented in state legislatures. So how, how would you compare that set of findings to yours? No, yeah. So here, first, I encourage all listeners to go buy Chris and Devin's book. It is an excellent analysis of representation in the American states. It is a phenomenal data collection effort and methodologically extremely sound. And so I really encourage listeners uh, to go purchase that book or check out the book from your library. 
Um, and in here, like, so their book is titled Dynamic Democracy. And the central focus of that is on representation. And so here they do discuss elections, but here they really are illustrating, as Matt, you said, that it's like, no, look, policies are becoming more representative kind of over time. In contrast, what my book is mainly focused on is this idea of accountability, in which it's like, are legislators being held accountable or responsible for the policies that they enact? And then in here, I do touch on representation a little, kind of showing a little, at least some legislators are outside or out of step of their district. And in here, Chris and Devin are kind of finding that policy is generally in step with what the state wants, but there are still some policies that are out of step. And so in here, and hopefully I'm characterizing it correctly, is that dynamic democracy is largely going to make the argument that policy is responsive to public opinion, but it is a slow process. And so here they kind of find that there are, there's policies that may be incongruent, but over time they will become more congruent. And then in this though, like I would kind of argue a little bit that the reason why they may be finding, like, say, a little bit of congruence or not as much congruence as they want is that because legislators actually aren't being held accountable. Now, why they do find the congruence that they do, I would probably respond saying it's like, well, legislators very well may fear being held accountable, in which there may be the threat of accountability. But what accountability in state legislatures would argue is that that threat isn't that real. And so we can kind of think about it, maybe going outside of the world of politics. Many of us maybe drive our cars and we may kind of know where a speed trap is. And so in this, what we basically have is that it's like, well, maybe I'm really running late for a meeting. I don't encourage any listener to speed, but in this, you're late for a meeting, you may go 10 to 15 over in order to kind of cut off a little bit of time if you know there's not a speed trap. And then, but if there's like a speed trap or if there's someone there to hold you accountable, whether you're late to the meeting or not, you are probably going to be going a little bit slower. And so what my fear is a little bit is that as politics kind of become more nationalized and legislators are recognizing how nationalized politics are becoming, and as state legislators may realize, for example, what they do themselves doesn't have that much implications for their own elections, they then may become more likely to produce unrepresentative policies. And this may be already the case, why we don't see, say, as representative policies as we may want. And then here we may also kind of think that, so for example, in their study of congruence, they find that policy kind of matched public opinion about 59% of the time. And then each decade, that congruence increased by about 3%. And then in that, this is going to be a normative take. And I've talked to Chris and Devin about this. We've had an excellent Authors Meets Critics panel together at APSA. And in this, this is a question that we all struggled with in terms of like, what is enough? Is this enough representation? In my book, is this enough accountability? Because here we're all doctors of political science, but I can't tell you whether or not what's 98.6 degrees in terms of a healthy amount of representation or a healthy amount of democracy. It's going to be a little bit more normative. And so from coming from Steve Rogers' perspective, I think we're falling a little bit short. Are we absolutely failing? No. Is there zero accountability in state legislatures? No. However, I do think that this is not probably what we normatively would want out of a more democratic system of government. Rogers is concerned about the state of democracy in the American states. 
but you can hear some openness to the more optimistic view that comes from Warshaw's analysis. It turns out that if you're not as beholden to elections as the key mechanism, you can find more responsiveness. Let's now turn to Warshaw's view. So your recent book, Dynamic Democracy, uh, takes a big picture look at state policymaking and uh, representation. What were the main findings and takeaways? I think some of the main findings and takeaways are that we find that over the long term, state policy is um, responsive to public to shifts in public opinion. Um, the public moves to the left. State policy will move, eventually move to the left. And if the public moves to the right, state policy um, will follow. But sometimes this takes a long time. What we find is that policymaking, the policymaking process is only incrementally responsive to changes in public opinion. Um, so it, take, it can take a while for public policy to sort of catch up to what the public wants it to do. And what we found is that one explanation for that is just an extremely large status quo bias in politics. You know, it takes um, this whole shift. If there's a, um, a conservative policy, it takes a really long time for states to shift that to a liberal policy. And conversely, if you start with a, um, a liberal one. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the, some of the reasons are that there's only so many things that policymakers can do in any given um, legislative session or any given year. Um, they also face you know, a myriad of um, veto points along the way that make it hard to push policy changes through. So you also uh, do a big picture look at public opinion uh, in the United States uh, across states. And I was struck that it's been mostly national. You do show some regional differences, um, but overall it's kind of been bumpy on economic policy moving uh, back and forth uh, leftward and rightward, um, but we've had this big leftward shift on racial issues over decades, and then a recent pretty big uh, leftward shift on other kind of social and cultural issues. So given this picture you're, you're painting of a representation, there might be some people that would, that would think, well, if economic policy is awash and these racial and cultural issues are moving leftward, shouldn't this have been an era of democratic dominance uh, or of big gains uh, by the party of the left? Uh, so, so why not? Well, I think the first thing I'd say is that by and large, policymaking has shifted to the left in response. Um, particularly on, on social issues, on um, gay rights and on LGBTQ plus rights more generally, um, the, the policymaking environment has really shifted quite substantially to the left over the last 20 years. Um, and that's been, you know, I think the story is more mixed than other social issues, but, you know, but even on, on other social issues, generally policies move to the left. Um, and as far as the electoral process, I think that, um, you know, we don't directly examine in the book um, sort of why, the, I don't think we directly examine this question in the book, but I think my two answer, two responses are that um, elections are a function of, of many things. And what we find is that um, in the book is that state elections are only, you know, in a very tenuous way responsive to changes in the ideology of the electorate. And that's partly because we think that state policy, start, state parties are, shifting in response to changes in the electorate. So to the extent that voters shift to the left, both parties will sh generally shift to the left. Um, and so I think that going back to your going back to your question, I think one of the reasons that um, Democrats haven't seen 
larger gains because of the public shifting to the left on social issues is because their platforms have shifted to the left sort of with the public. So if Democrats still have the same platform they had 10 years ago, they may not have made the policymaking you know, advances that they've made, but they probably would be more successful electorally. And I think to some extent, that's always a trade-off for parties. So you also find that uh, policymaking has moved uh, leftward over time, including on economic uh, policies, um, but it's also started to vary more uh, across red and, and blue states. So one interpretation of that is just that that red states are, are just kind of moving slower uh, in this uh, leftward direction. Um, but I think a lot of people see the current environment as maybe uh, maybe a point more of stasis where maybe we had a leftward shift over time, but now we're really getting states moving in opposite uh, directions. How would you interpret that? I think we're maybe seeing early hints of that, especially on abortion. I think that for most of the time period we looked at in our book, the um, overwhelming I think what you're describing was largely true. That's the, the policymaking environment was shifting to the left. Democrats were advancing more, and, and not just Democrats, but like states, states more generally, were largely advancing more liberal policies. Um, and so conservative victories were largely stopping that shift to the left in their state. Um, and you'd see, you know, when Republicans took control of the state, um, you know, they'd, they'd stop these leftward, leftward shifts. Um, I do think in recent years, we're seeing more rightward shifts as well. And that's true on abortion. It's true on, it's really true on gun control and gun rights. Um, I think on economic issues, it's sort of not quite as clear. Um, you know, one thing I'll say is that um, as sort of going back to the, our, our conversation about your first question about some of the overall findings of the book, that, and I think this ties into this question as well, the Medicaid expansion I think really highlights some of the findings in our book really well, which is that, you know, the Medicaid expansion was extremely controversial when it passed. And it was decry, you know, liberals thought it was sort of terrible that only if only a handful of states adopted it initially. But over time, what we've seen is that the Medicaid expansion has gotten more popular um, sort of across the board. Um, but actually, particularly in, in red states, it's gotten more popular. And over time, more and more states have adopted it. In some cases, through the political process, the, they started the, um, through the legislature. In other cases, through the initiative process. Um, and I think that illustrates both that, you know, generally speaking, that the policy environment is shifting to the left, that you have this big expansion of who's on, um, on Medicaid. But it also really, really, I think, um, um, you know, is, is a great example of policy being responsive to what the public wants. Like it doesn't happen as fast as many advocates wanted it to happen. Um, and I think that, you know, if your expectation is that in a democracy policy is going to instantly respond to public opinion, um, you know, that's that's not the way democracy, that's not, not the way governments work. But over the long term, government does tend to eventually do what people want it to do. So you find that uh, states have become more representative of public opinion um, and still responsive to public opinion shifts. Um, so, of course, we do know that, uh, you know, some more conservative states were, were governed uh, by Democrats and liberal governments and, and vice versa. So we've kind of matched that process. Um, but I was just uh, visiting the University of, of Texas at Austin. Uh, which is a mostly blue audience in a in a red state, um, and they really felt 
you know, uh, th- that uh, calling their state government uh, a representative was was a stretch. Um, so that just made me think that maybe we have we could have more responsiveness to the median voter uh, in a state. But because red and blue politics have become so distinct, have more people who, who really feel themselves completely off kilter with their state government. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. Is the public has gotten more polarized, um, which has clearly happened over the last, um, you know, thirty years. And, and I think there's academic debates on whether the pol- the public is polarized more or less than elected officials, and probably the public is polarized at least somewhat less than elected officials. Um, but certainly, the public is more polarized. And so, in Texas, there's a lot of of liberals, just like in California, there's a lot of conservatives, and they are surely going to feel left out of the the policy process um, as their states, um, you know, state government, state policies maybe drift toward the the other party's preferences. So one of the the mechanisms uh, for uh, responsiveness is electoral. I know it's not the only mechanism, but more liberal states are going to elect more Democrats uh, and that's going to move policy in a liberal direction. But each one of those uh, two steps, um, you know, isn't isn't one to one. So how strong are these relationships where liberal public opinion elects Democrats and Democratic elections move policy leftward? And where does that break down? So, um, you know, we clearly find is that both of these both of those connections connections are true. So on the one hand, you get um, when Republicans win a um, win an election, they're going to shift state policy to the right. When Democrats win win governorships or state legislatures, they're going to shift policy to the left. Um, we find that that those effects have increased dramatically over time, um, but they're still relatively small in absolute terms. Um, you know, it's not that if Democrats, as we one of the things we talk about in our book, is if Democrats win control of you know, Idaho, they're not going to turn it into Vermont instantly. And so too, if Republicans win control in Massachusetts, like as they have in the governorship there in the recent past, um, you know, their their ability to make dramatic changes is, is pretty limited. So the incremental so t- t- party control, just like public opinion, tends to have incremental effects. Um, but we also find that as far as, you know, p- party control of government is actually not a big mechanism for how shifts in public opinion affect the policy process. Um, because shifts in the, in the public opinion don't have huge effects on elections, because at least on state elections, because, polit- because politicians tend to shift with the public. So what we find is that um, within party you know, um, um, responsiveness um, really is an important mechanism of democracy in the states. And as an example for that, you know, a number of states have adopted the Medicaid expansion, even without a changeover in party control of government. And in the book, we talk about Virginia, where in 2017, Democrats failed to win control of the um, of the state legislature. But nonetheless, Virginia still adopted the Medicaid expansion because the, it was viewed by state legislators that that was, you know, the um that Democrats make, had, had made gains in the state legislature. And um, I think that was viewed as a signal that the public in Virginia was shifting to the left. Um, and there was certainly polling showing the Medicaid expansion being more popular. And so in the wake of that, Virginia um, adopted the Medicaid expansion, even though re- Republicans continued to control the government. And we're seeing the same thing in North Carolina. Um, 
earlier in, in earlier in the 2000s, in the 2010s, Indiana adopted a Medicaid expansion, though Republicans controlled the government. Um, so we see many examples of, you know, a party adopting popular policies that maybe don't fit their party's preferences when they see clear signals that the, the public overwhelmingly supports it. So, yeah, it may surprise people that uh, a lot of the responsiveness is really coming in between elections um, and within uh, parties uh, controlling the same same state. So what are the mechanisms of that beyond just electoral threat? At least a couple of the examples you just mentioned, it wasn't elections themselves, but maybe the threat of, of losing. But it seems like yeah. your your data is also showing that if in Idaho, if there's a shift, even if there's not really any threat uh, that the Democrats are going to take control, you're going to expect responsiveness. So is that true? And, and why? Well, I think it's not that there's no electoral threat, right? I mean, elections still matter, but it's the threat of, of being vulnerable in an election. And I think that, you know, one of the things we find in the book is that when partisan gerrymandering takes, you know, really dampens the threat of losing elections or losing control of the government, then that can dampen um, the policy change and can really reduce the, the, the congruence between state policies and public opinion. So I do think there needs to be that electoral threat to facilitate this um, this kind of within party not responsiveness, but it doesn't necessarily have to happen via party turnover, via vote, voting out one party and voting in another party. So you said that uh, the responsiveness is incremental. Um, so explain that a, a little bit. Um, and it may, may surprise people because some of the salient examples um, often look like a, a new party comes to power um, and starts trying to do every, everything at once. Uh, I'm, I'm living in the state capital of Michigan, where the Democrats are certainly acting like, uh, you know, they should do as much as they can in the next uh, two years after 40 years uh, out of full control uh, of, of state government. So is there a possibility that that's, that's changing or, or are we just kind of viewing it wrong in terms of the responsiveness? Well, I think it's, there's a couple parts to unpack that question. Um, one is that party control of government, you know, like I said, is not totally unrelated to shifts in the mass public's ideology or issue preference, but it's like mostly unrelated, right? Like Michigan didn't shift to a democratic control because mostly because of change, because Michigan people got more liberal. It's mostly because of, you know, 2020 it was 2020 and to some extent 2022 were like, decent years for Democrats, particularly in the upper Midwest. Um, and the, um, I think another factor in Michigan is that Michigan had these really gerrymandered state legislature, map, state legislature maps before 2022. So there was um, a long period where the state legislature maybe was less responsive to the public than we might expect because of the, um, those gerrymandered maps. Um, I think the last point on Michigan is that Michigan is a little bit of an outlier, maybe because of those the, the latter factor of sort of the long, the long, the long period that they had gerrymandered maps that reduced the responsiveness of the legislature. But the, I think that the policy we haven't calculated it yet, but I, my guess is the policy change that we're going to see over a two-year period in Michigan is probably one of the largest in history, if not the largest in history. So this is not a typical like the the amount the amount of policy the, the degree of policy change we're seeing in Michigan is like extremely atypical. I think that normally it's much more common for for policy change to be you know slow and incremental, where you see um, a state legislature adopt one or two or three 
major pol major policy changes in every year. And I think one way to think about this is that if you look at the largest, the larger policy, I know it doesn't feel this way as we're all living through like the daily news cycle. But if generally speaking, if you look at the the I don't know a state statute book or the Federal Register, right? One way to think about this is what percentage of the laws are changed in any two-year period, and it's an extremely small percentage. And that's true at the federal level. Like when Trump took control, liberals were sort of you know, you know, extremely frightened, you know, scared that he was going to like change all this stuff. And they, certainly they changed some important policies. I'm not saying that nothing changed, but um, you know, as a percentage of like the edifice of federal policy. It was, you know, a pretty small percentage of like the overall federal policies. Now, if Republicans had kept unified control of government for 15 or 20 years, and then incrementally those policies, you know, they, they would have accumulated and there would have been eventually been very large changes in federal policy. But it really takes this like incremental accumulation, I think, and, you know, putting Michigan aside, um, it, it, it usually takes this sort of, you know, gradual accumulation. So Steve Rogers is uh, the other interview for this uh, episode, uh, and he has written a book on accountability in state legislatures. And I know you all were on a, a panel uh, together uh, and have, have been in, in contact. Um, he focuses on, on the electoral dimension, but really has some, some findings that would seem to make uh, some of your findings harder to explain. Um, it, just that you know, state legislators are often unknown. Uh, some people don't know even who controls their, uh, their state government, uh, they, they have a lot of trouble uh, holding incumbents uh, accountable um, for their actions, given they don't even know who, who they are, uh, much less uh, kind of what they're doing. So how would you, I guess, reconcile his, his findings with yours? Um, and, and his interpretation, I think, was that it's mostly about setting the bar for accountability. Uh, that is how accountable, congruent, or, or responsive does policy have to be uh, for, for us to think accountability is occurring. So do you agree with that? Uh, and if so, how do we set that bar? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, so here's, here's what I would say is that, first of all, accountability, Steve finds that accountability is pretty low in state legislatures. Um, we also looked at this and found that it's, um, relatively low, but not zero. You know, if you're an extremist in state legislatures, then, you know, you pay a one or two or three point percentage point penalty in general elections. And I think that's generally consistent with what Steve finds. Now, Steve's take on that is that that's really, that's like a really low level of accountability. And my take on that is a little more nuanced. And the reason for that is, first of all, it's not that different from Congress. <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if Congress, the, the penalty, people have found the penalty for extremists in Congress is maybe three or four percentage points at most for being an extremist. So if you have a one or two point penalty in state legislatures, like, you know, that's in the ballpark of what we see in Congress. So it's, it's not an order of magnitude smaller. Um, another piece is that we have, we find, Devin and I fund much more accountability for governors. Um, and you see that in recent elections, right, where Democrats ran, won a contested governor's election in Kansas when there was a sort of an extremist that had been the, the governor of Kansas. On the other side of the on the other side of the country in Vermont, there was sort of a, a very liberal Democratic governor of Vermont got voted out of office in favor of a moderate Republican. So you see much more accountability for um for extremism, I think, in gubernatorial elections. And governors, you know, are really important. They're understudied, I think, by academics, because we like legislature, we like studying legislatures for a variety of reasons. But, you know, governors are really important and they really drive a big part of the policy process. Um, 
And then putting all that together, I think that we just don't, um, it's, it's not obvious theoretically how to say how much accountability is enough to drive legislature, legislators to be responsive to the public. Um, you know, you need more than zero, but you don't need to have, you know, you don't need to have um, automatic, you know, that legislators lose 100% of the time for being extremists in order for them to worry that there might be a penalty. And I, you know, arguably, I think one could reconcile these by saying that what us and Steve find is that there is some accountability um, and that might be enough to drive the kind of incremental response in this that Devin and I find. So remember, Devin and I don't find that state policy is like instantly responsive to changes in public opinion or that elections are. You know, we find that this, this responsiveness is, is relatively... Um, uh, it's, it's slow, it's incremental, and it, it really takes a long time. And I think that, that could be because partly because citizens are only modestly holding their elected officials accountable. So we also uh, know that, that state legislative uh, elections are, are nationalized and have, uh, have become more nationally focused. Um, and there's, there's an interesting... I guess two two sets of findings that uh, I talked to Steve about that I wanted to get your your take on. On on the one hand, you know, we do have more people voting uh, the the same way across uh, different uh, levels of government. Uh, we have more consistent candidate behavior uh, in policy across uh, levels of government. So we have nationalized politics. On the other hand, you know, you can look at you know, a near 150 year trend and see that, you know, nationally state legislative elections have gone the same way as congressional elections for the whole time. So how, how, how should we think about how much has changed uh, in, in our capacity for responsiveness and, and everything else, uh, given uh, that politics are now very nationalized, but we, they always have taken place in this national partisan context. Yeah, I mean, I think I, 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 it's interesting, like what um, Dan Hopkins shows is that on the one hand, that elections are getting more nationalized. And that's certainly true when you look at all kinds of different electoral data. Um, but on the other hand, what Steve shows is that state legislatures have always been really tightly tied, or at least shifts in the two-party state legislative seats have always been really tied to shifts in their fortunes in federal elections. Um, and the correlation is, you know, extremely high between shifts in state legislative seats and shifts in U.S. House seats. Um, I do think that, you know, nationalization certainly is growing to some degree, and it does seem like it's really ticked upwards substantially in the last four to six years, really 2018. If you look at electoral data, 2018 seems like a big inflection point for nationalization. Um, now, we don't know if that's going to continue upward forever. I think if it did continue upward forever and there was, you know, 100% tie between federal elections and state and local elections, then then we, we wouldn't see much, if any, responsiveness of state policy to shifts in state-level opinion. It would be entirely about people's general political attitudes and shifts in party control. Um, I don't think we're there yet, but I do, you know, I do worry that the increasing nationalization sort of breaks down some of these um, mechanisms for responsiveness. So we, we've also talked to Jake Grumbach about his uh, book um, labeling uh, states as engines of, of democratic backsliding um, with a lot of institutional change uh, that, that might have uh, enabled that. 
Uh, you also look at a bunch of institutions uh, and and reforms, but I think you have what I saw as a more optimistic take. Number one, um, you know, you can have institutions that disrupt uh, this uh, this process of public opinion impacting uh, public policy. Um, but I'll, in a lot of ways, the, those institutions are changing to improve uh, the the responsiveness uh, between public opinion and policy. So, so how would you reconcile those those two findings? Over one of the things we tried to do in our book is to take a very long term perspective. Um, and over the very long term, we think that American democracy is stronger now than it's ever been before. Uh, that's certainly true at the state level, and it's probably true at the federal level. There's some unique threats related to election subversion and um, some candidates that are, um, you know, maybe don't totally believe in democracy. But in terms of the structures we have, institutional structures, we think that democracy is is stronger now than before, and that's because I think that's pretty clear when you look at how anti-democratic American government was in the not so distant past. You know, we had um, Jim Crow laws that excluded you know vast numbers of Americans um, from the political process. Um, we had malapportionment that weighted some people's votes like a hundred times the weight of other people's votes. Um, and we don't talk about this in the book, but you also had pretty clear evidence that elections were getting stolen in the not so distant past for important offices. So, you know, I think that all of many of those, most of those problems have been fixed today. Moreover, it's much easier to vote today in basically every state in the country than it was 30 years ago, let alone 50 or 60 years ago. Um, and as a result, voter participation is way up over the past 50 years. So we think that over the very long term, democracy is stronger than it, it was, but we continue to face some important threats. And this is where, you know, I agree with Jake that um, in partisan gerrymandering, especially, and if you look at Jake's, um, his, 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 especially his APSR article, part of the, the core of his, his data comes down to the fact that partisan gerrymandering got worse between 2000 and 2018, whatever the coverage of his, his study was. And that was largely due to Republican states enacting more extreme gerrymanders, you know, not entirely, um, but largely due to that. And that sort of, you know, led to, I think, some of his, a lot of his findings. While it's true that over the long term, I think it's gotten easier to vote and voter participation is up, I do worry about, um, you know, new restrictions being passed. And I think one of the things that Devin and I say in the conclusion of our book is that, you know, it's, it's sort of on all of us to continue to make democracy work better and to resist um, you know, um, democratic, um, uh, backsliding as Jake would say. So I think it's, I certainly worry about democratic backsliding happen happening while at the same time, um, you know, finding that over the long term, our democracy is, is stronger than it's been before. There's a lot more to learn. The science of politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, all linked on our website. Are red and blue states making red and blue policies? Do Democrats and Republicans get different results? Is democracy declining in the American states? Does nationalized media mean the death of local politics? And are divided governments the cause of delays and shutdowns? Thanks to Stephen Rogers and Chris Warshaw for joining me. Please check out Accountability in State Legislatures and Dynamic Democracy, and then listen in next time. Mm-hmm.